Okay, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Brooklyn's Members TV and Podcast. I'm Steve Clark, and I'm delighted to be joined by the author, Civil Airline, and former RAF tornado pilot, Mike Napier. Hello. Welcome, Mike, and thanks being, for being with us this evening. Um, this is a unique event, as Tim has just said. It's us taking our first baby steps with live streaming. Um, so welcome to all our viewers that I can't see at the moment, but I've heard you come in. So thank you for participating. Um, we've got quite a lot to learn as we go, but uh, bear with us. So Mike, before we discuss your book, Vickers Wellington Units of Bomber Command, can we just chat through your flying history? Well, yes. Well, well thanks very much indeed for inviting me uh, on this, your inaugural um, live chat. Um, my, my flying career actually does have a, a Brooklyn's um, link to it, it in that I started to, to fly in 1977 I was given a flying uh, scholarship by the Air Cadets and I was sent to fly at the Brooklyn School of Flying uh, at Sowell Airport in Northampton and as you may be aware Brooklyn's Aviation had been uh, one of the big operators in uh, at Sowell right from the before the war they started flying clubs there or, or flying school shall I say um, and then um, they carried out um, servicing of Wellingtons uh, there at the, at the airfield. So uh, Sywell was still being, or the flying school there was still being run by Brooklands when I uh, learned to fly in 1977. Um, Brooklands then pulled out the following year. I don't know if that had anything to do with my uh, my efforts or not. Surely <laughs> um, not. <laughs> hopefully not. Uh, but the, yeah, then I joined the, the Royal Air Force and uh, I trained as a tornado pilot and I spent well, nearly 10 years actually um, at RF Bruggen uh, in Germany flying the Tornado GR1. So I saw the back end of the, uh, the Cold War and, uh, and the beginning of um, the sort of the, the current um, uh, modus operandi of, uh, of operating over the Middle East. Um, and then uh, in 1997, I left uh, the RAF and uh, joined British Airways and then flew initially the McDonnell Douglas DC-10, uh, then the Boeing 787, um, then spent the best part of 12 years as a captain on the um, Airbus A320 and then the last few years on the Boeing 787. Um, I actually retired from it last year and I'm now doing a little bit of flying with the sort of almost full circle back with the Air Cadets uh, for the Air Experience flights uh, at RF Benson. Probably a very good time to retire last year, Mike, I would I think. think. So, yeah. <laughs> Immaculate timing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so back to the book, I understand, uh, which was published last Thursday, so our conversation right, is yeah. very timely. Yeah, yes, indeed, uh, perfect timing indeed. Okay, let's go back, way back to 1932, and in response to the Air Ministry invitation to tender for a twin engine medium daylight bomber designed by Rex Pearson and Barnes Wallace, the first Wellington flew out of Weybridge factory on the 15th of June, 1936. Take us on the story of this remarkable aircraft from there, Mike. Well, the one is one of the, I think, the great unsung heroes of the RAF uh, during the Second World War. There were only two aircraft, I think I'm right in saying, that were actually in service before the war and remained in frontline service all the way through the war and also remained um, in production through that time as well. Um, one was the Spitfire, which you've always heard about, and the other was the Wellington. Um, and so perhaps when everybody thinks in, uh, in terms of 
the Spitfire, the Lancaster, as being the two iconic aircraft of the RAF. Perhaps they should be thinking of the Spitfire and the Wellington. Um, as you say, it, it entered service actually in uh, late 1936, 1937, and um, I th initially um, it equipped uh, about 10 squadrons worth of, uh, of what was six group um, of, the, of the RAF. Um, and um, I'm sorry, that's three group. Um, each group in, in the Air Force had a, operated a different sort of airplane, and uh, three group were given the Wellington. Um, and from there, they developed um, as, a, as a daylight bomber. Um, it became, after some rather disastrous daylight raids, became a night bomber. And the, the aircraft's flexibility um, really made, made sure that it became the, 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 the aircraft of choice. And um, while other aircraft types, such as the Whitley and Hamden, were slowly sort of phased out, the Wellington took over as, as the mainstay of Bomber Command, really through those, the first half of the, uh, of the Second World War. Um, took part in the 1,000 bomber raids, um, and, and eventually there were about 22 squadrons actually equipped with the aircraft, um, until eventually they were all uh, re-equipped with, with four-engine aircraft. Um, I say 22 uh, squadrons, that's 22 squadrons in Bomber Command, there were others in the Middle East and in Coastal Command as well. Um, and indeed, by the time the aircraft went out of service from Bomber Command's front line in, in uh, 1943, it was already um, well-established, um, both in Coastal Command, uh, and it remained there in service right till the end of the war, and then also in the Middle East and also in the Far East as well. Again, it remained in service in both of those theatres right to the end of the war. So it really was an aeroplane which, um, which operated over Germany, over, over the um, Atlantic, in the Middle East and in the Far East um, with, with great distinction. So um, uh, yeah, really did, did play a major part in, uh, in the RF's efforts during the Second World War. So it really was quite a flexible aircraft in terms of its abilities, right? It was indeed. It was, it was a very. It was designed such that it had quite a um, a growth potential. And um, indeed, from the Wellington Mark One, um, which entered service, we say before the war, to the, the Mark Ten, which was in service uh, in sort of 1942, um, the the engine power had had increased dramatically, and the load carrying ability had as well. So the airplane, you know, could still you know, had grown to be able to carry things like the 4,000 pound bombs and things like that, which, which other aircraft couldn't cope with. So it really was an aeroplane which was, yeah, incredibly flexible. Perhaps we can touch upon that a little bit later on, Mike, but uh, really what, um, what inspired you to write this book and how much research, well, having read it, I know you've done a lot of research, but <laughs> how much uh, research did it take actually to, uh, uh, to produce the book? Well, first of all, I have to admit that um, I can't take credit for the idea of doing it. Um, I happened to be talking to Tony Holmes, who was the um, series editor for the, um, the Osprey Combat Aircraft series. And during the course of the conversation, he said that he um, wanted somebody to do a book on, um, on the Vickers Wellington. And I, as a throwaway line to him, said, oh, I could do that for you and thought no more of it. Um, until about two weeks later, when I got an email saying, you know, you said you write that book or can I have it done by... Um, you know, a few months time. Um, so I, I, I've been given the title, um, but then it's a bit like an exam question really of, of, of how to sort it out. And initially I thought, well, there must be loads of books written about, about the airplane. If I, if I read the books, I'll be able to, to rehash that. Um, but I quickly found that as I read the books, that there was so much detail missing really and, and, uh, and bits that were skipped over um, that I really did have to go right back to basics. Um, so, so, so that I did. Um, I spent an awful lot of time in the National Archive going through all the squadron diaries, um, 
uh, of, of the, the squadron which operated it. Um, also, um, a number of files about there um, about how the airplane was produced, um, the various modifications to it. Uh, various sort of assessments of his operational ability, uh, lots of uh, the paperwork about um, how the squadrons were going to expand because Bomber Command sort of doubled, uh, trebled, in fact probably almost quadrupled in size in, in, in those first few years of, of the war. Um, so I, I read through all that, uh, visited the RF Museum and looked through their archive, um, visited just down the road from us, we are lucky enough to have um, a very very small museum um, called Wellington Aviation. Um, which is based around the activities of the operational training unit, which was based at Morton in Marsh. Uh, and the, the owner there um, very kindly let, let me look through, through his archives there. And then of course, the Brooklands Museum itself. Um, a good friend of mine from my RAF flying training days um, works on the Viscount. And um, I, I said to him, can you, can you get me in there please? And he very kindly organized for me to go and have a look through the, uh, the photo archive at Brooklands and also into the library where again there's was, there was a great deal of, of fascinating information mm -hmm. so really i just pulled all that lot together um, and as i said I, most of the other books about the wellington do cover its entire service from um, all the way through the coastal command and through um, the middle east and the far east which means of necessity that they're, they're fairly they, they do skate over things and, and don't go into great detail so yeah. And then that, to an extent, is my interest really as someone who, who, who's flown airplanes. Is you know how how what are they like to fly? How how are they? How do you operate them? What how do you use them? Um, and it's it's one thing to say, well, five aircraft bomb Hamburg that night, but I think, well, who flew them? Where did they come from? How did they get there? What did they do when they got there? How do they get home? And, and it's all those questions which uh, which I find interesting and, and and which I'd like to research and and, and get to the bottom of really. Did your research uh, expose anything that you've not known before or anyone else had uh, written before? Were there any surprises that came out from your research? I, there were lots of areas of detail that I really had no idea about and, and they varied for, from minutiae, like um, I hadn't realised that there was a, um, a buoyancy um, system fitted to the Wellington so if it, if it ditched it would, it would make it more buoyant. I think it's the only airplane or only bomber aircraft that had that. Again, I found that that was the case. Um, the the, the um, Mark One Wellington didn't have very good defence armament, and they, they actually uh, changed it with with the Mark One A, which came in service actually just just as the war was opening. So so those aircraft went to uh, went into action, and they had a, a ventral turret which was um, um, dropped underneath the aircraft, so it's retractable, and uh, was there to augment the, the firepower because they they reckoned that. Um, because of the speed that these aircraft travelled, that, that nobody would be able to attack from, from the sides, from the beams. Um, but in fact, that, that proved, not, proved not to be the case. But the, I, I actually managed to find detail of which aircraft had this, this turret and, and whether it was used, because some, some books say it was hardly used, but actually I've discovered that, that it was used quite a lot, actually. And in fact, they um, discovered a, a, a three-group um, order saying that these turrets were to be um, extended when the aircraft passed the, the third um, degree uh, east. Um, then um, other little, I mean, other points of, of again, quite just quite entertaining detail for the fact that um, uh, if you take off in a Mark One uh, Wellington, then it will swing to the right. But if you take off in a Mark Two, it swings to the left because the engines went around in a different direction. Um, so there were all these sort of tiny little little bits and pieces like that. The, the thing that I found most interesting though were um, the operational training units because I, I 
again just took those for granted really these things were training units and therefore irrelevant but actually the when the war started there, there was one i think training unit um by 1942 1943 there were 22 of these things now each one of them was the same size as four frontline squadrons so these are massive uh, massive um, units um, and they all had to be um, accommodated in airfields so and there weren't enough airfields around so each one of these massive units needed two airfields because of all the, the work that was done all the, the, the frequent flying and the fly around circuits so for each of these OTUs two airfields had to be built from scratch <laughs> so I mean you can imagine it's an absolutely massive undertaking and then there's all sorts of synthetic training as well that, that, that went on there um, so again it was just, uh, the other thing I hadn't realised that although the, um, the, the Wellingtons were involved in, in mainly in the night bombing campaign, they were still doing daylight bombing raids actually right the way through the, um, through the war, what they call cloud cover raids, where one or two airplanes would go out and they'd just try and hide in the clouds and see where they could get to. And then if they made it to Germany, they'd drop a bomb on something that looked good and then come back again. Um, so there, there were lots and lots of just little bits and pieces that, uh, you know, that, that were there, which um, you, know, you, you find... Um, and um, again, which, which normally gets skated over and, and, and not mentioned. So it was all those things which I, which I found absolutely fascinating, I have to say. Yeah, Mike, we've carried out um, numerous interviews, both on aviation and motorsport recently. And without exception, it's the human stories that make the compelling reading. And I have to say to that end, your Wellington book ticks all the boxes on that. Did any families get involved with your research into the... Uh, to the pilots and crew? No, they, they didn't actually. Most of, uh, of uh, there are a few um, accounts which I was able to read. In fact, there's a fantastic one in the Brooklands Museum um, by a guy who was um, by the name of Harris, um, who had been involved in the um, daylight raid to Wilhelmshaven in 1939, a disastrous one where half of the aircraft got shot down. Um, so it's fascinating to read through that and uh, his account of somebody who's actually there and, and watched this uh, the chaos surrounding uh, and, and actually survived it. Um, but then, again, numerous other little snippets that, that, that I picked up. Uh, I was looking at one aeroplane, which was a, um, it was a Polish aircraft. No, I lied, it was a Czech aircraft. And um, it ditched in the middle of the North Sea. Um, and one of the things that you kind of, again, take for granted is that these things ditched and um, you think, well, someone would go off and find them. But of course, um, because the navigation was so, so vague, generally speaking, they weren't able to give an accurate position. So whoever was going to look for them didn't really know where to go if indeed they did get a, um, a signal. This particular aircraft did ditch. Um, the crew who had survived the ditching jumped in a dinghy and then they spent, um, I think, about three or four days adrift in the, in the North Sea in the middle of winter. And eventually they washed up, sort of almost um, died of, of exposure, they washed up in, in Holland. Um, they were taken prisoner and uh, this particular guy, uh, Alois uh, Shishka his name is, uh, eventually went back to join, rejoin the RF, they went back to Czechoslovakia. Then became, was a, a public um, enemy because he'd served in the RAF and become a non-person who wasn't allowed to work. Um, but eventually, when the, the Berlin Wall came down and, and uh, democracy was stored to Czechoslovakia, he, he was reinstated actually and became a major general. I think he's in his probably 70s by then. But, um, but yeah, fascinating story. Um, there was another story which particularly tickled me, which was a crew who were on the, on the operational training units. Basically, one of their last sorties was they were sent off on a real live mission. Um, 
usually to, to, to somewhere like France, which uh, was not terribly heavily defended. So they were given the option, you know, so they could see what it's like to go on operation mission without, without really risking their necks. Um, and this particular account written by the, the captain explains how they were flying along and um, he saw the Cherbourg Peninsula and thought it was Jersey. So he turned when the and, and told the navigator what he was doing. The navigator said, no, no, that, that, that's Cherbourg, not Jersey. So he argued with the navigator and did his own thing. Um, and then they eventually found themselves. And at the end of it, he written that you know, they'd had a very interesting and, and, and had learnt lots. And, um, and the navigator had, had, had done very well despite his attempts to, uh, to, to undermine his work. And then uh, at the bottom of this, there's the report by the uh, group captain saying, I think this is absolutely disgraceful. And this officer or, or, or this sergeant um, you know, needs to be interviewed. And then a note saying that he had to have on his um, personal file a note saying that he wasn't very good at co crew cooperation. Um, so, yeah, there are lots of stories. I mean, the one that really is an amazing story is um, uh, James Allen, who was a New Zealand um, second pilot, and they were coming back um, from, I, I can't remember where they'd been to, to, to raid, but the aircraft uh, was um, hit by anti-aircraft fire, caught fire, or the engine caught fire, and he then decided that he would climb out onto the wing. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's amazing, the mentality, but yeah, he, he climbed out, and because of the Wellington was made of... Uh, canvas and because of the structure he was able to sort of kick and, and punch his way to holes as, 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 as he worked his way out through, uh, across the wing um, and then he uh, yeah had an engine cover I think which he, which he then sort of stuffed in the hole to try and put the, the, the fire out um, and eventually um, eventually managed to do so and then clambered back in um, but amazing but again I mean like so many of these stories um, that there's a sad ending he, he got his Victoria Cross um, uh, but about a couple months later he was killed in action um, and again, there's lots of stories like that of guys who, who did amazing deeds. A real um, boy's own story, I guess, Mike. Yeah, um, yeah there was another guy, another guy called Budden, who um, his aircraft similarly was, uh, uh, engine was taken out and the thing was, was caught fire. Some detail which I haven't quite got to the bottom of, which was that his, his harness got caught in the control, so the aircraft went into a spin. So it's a huge airfoil on fire with engine failure and spinning, but he managed to recover it and then flew home. Um, and was awarded a uh, DSO. He, he couldn't collect that because he'd been shot down on his next raid and was actually a prisoner of war at the time. <clears throat> <laughs> um, Mike, the book, the book is extremely well put together, but the highlight for me is 20 or so colour plates that appear in the book, and it shows yeah. the different generations of the production mm -hmm. of this aircraft. Um, I'm not even going to try and um, pronounce the gentleman's name who... Uh, did these prints but they are extraordinary they, they are fantastic and the the the, the um the slight shame is is that they're, they're printed in you know although they do uh, cover a full page the detail that that he he'd actually painted them in because because I, I saw the uh, obviously he and i went, went through the various stages um so i, I saw the finished one for a, a version of each one and the detail is absolutely amazing and, and it's a shame that you can't see some of the detail particularly of the artwork because you completely yeah. reproduced what was what was painted on the airplane um, um really fantastic detail mm. you're right they're, they're, they are they're, they're stunning aren't they? really fantastic they are and i recommend the book uh, mm. purely just for those uh, plates yeah so um, would I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i'm sure you would one thing that i'm fascinated we touched upon obviously the generations the mark one through to the mark six and it had its own particular things that it did different now, given the fact that vickers produced over eleven thousand mm. of these aircraft how on earth did they keep updating and improving the breed right in the middle of the war 
as you say, I think it was a, a well, it, it, I think the design and development was a continuous, um, uh, a continuous process really, um, because, it, because I think because of the lead in time, as one aircraft was, um, or one mark was finalised and was sent off to production, they were already looking ahead. Uh, and of course, as soon as aircraft went into service, any uh, improvements that be required were communicated back. So as you say, it was a, a continuous process. There were actually three factories um, building these things. There was obviously Brooklands. Um, there was another one at Chester, which was, it was a bit like it was sort of IKEA version where um, they, they built various kits were sort of de um, delivered there and they built them from kit form um, and, and they actually used a whole lot there in Chester and then up at Blackpool at Squires Gate there was um, a, a complete mirror image really of the Brooklyn's factory which did things right from from, from the start um, but yes you're, you're right the, the, the aircraft did um, did evolve um, uh, but, but again I think that's probably true of most of the aircraft again when you look at the Spitfire that that evolved yeah. through the yeah. war as well as as engine technology um, improved um, and as, as weapons um, and tactics changed as well. Did um, aircraft that were badly damaged um, come back to the factory for repair or did local airfields um, do most of the repair work? I think it depended very much on, on how much damage was done um, the the structure um, was um, a, a, a frame which was then covered in canvas. Um, the geodetic um, system, um, as most people are aware of, was actually a fantastically strong system. So so the, the aircraft would come back yeah, with, with all sorts of, of damage done to them. Some of which could be repaired locally, um, and some of which would um, would be uh, would require going to a maintenance unit for, for to be fully stripped down and, and, and rebuilt. And I think some of the aircraft that, that, that that went into the maintenance unit probably came out and probably went to, to the the training units rather than back to the frontline units. Um, again, I, I suspect that most of the frontline um, aircraft were out of the factory until such time as they were, they were, they were dented or, 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 or twisted so much that they were uh, they were sent back to the OTUs. Yeah, um, Mike, I realise you've written I think five other books um, uh, in the last few years. Um, how did you get the bug for writing books? Yeah, or nasty habit, I suppose you could say. Um, <clears throat> I started off, I again, there's a Wellington connection to that, um, in that I, I started off through an interest, at one of the squadrons that I served on in Germany, um, I held um, squadron reunions, and I got to know quite a few of the, of the wartime guys, and they'd flown marauders, but also the Wellingtons, um, Coastal Command Wellingtons uh, at Chivner in Devon, um, in the last few years, or last year of the war. And so I, I had all this information for, from people, from various conversations with them, from letters from them. I've managed to get hold of photographs and God knows what else. Um, and having amassed all this, I thought we could to, to write a squadron history. Um, it had been done once before, but it hadn't been done to the standard that I expected. I, I've already sort of um, given details of, of my, um, I suppose, pedantry in terms of detail. So again, I, I, I wrote that and then hawked it around trying to get someone to publish it, which uh, a, a publisher called Penn and Saw very kindly did. And then having done that, which, which covered the, the, the First and Second World Wars, the Squadron Centenary was coming up, so I persuaded them to, that I could do a second volume on um, bringing it up to date. And, and it went from there, really. So I, did, I published one of my own, uh, my own memoir of, uh, of flying in the RF in the, um, in the, in the 80s and 90s. Um, a history of the Gloucester Javelin, um, 
of the Tornado GR1, which is what I'd flown. Um, and I actually also did one with my first book for Osprey, uh, which was a book on the uh, on the history or the operational history of the RAF itself, which came out uh, two years ago for the centenary. And, and um, was, I think, quite a nice um, uh, monument, shall I say, to, you know, to, to, to the operations that the RAF flew during, well, in 100 years of, of existence. Um, and in our pre... Uh pre-broadcast uh, chat um, you said that you were a finalizing on or you hoped the uh, latest book would go to print very soon well I've I've got a few irons in the fire at the moment yeah there's a book um, which uh, called in Cold War skies which is it's a history of the air forces uh, and the aircraft of the Cold War um, of NATO and the Warsaw Pact um, and that actually comes out in about three weeks time um, but I've, I've, yeah, we're about to start work on uh, on editing and, and designing a book on the Korean War, which I which I finished writing a little while ago. Um, and also for this, um, the same series as the Wellington, there's one on the um, Tornado GR1 or no, uh, Tornado GR1 and Tornado Three units of the of the first Gulf War, which uh, which will come out I think next May. Uh, I think so, you yeah, better be. I think you'd be better be <laughs> back with us again soon, Mike. Um, <laughs> before I hand back to Tim and. Q&A just to say thank you so much for being with us this evening. I wish you continued success with the book which is available at ospreypublishing.com at a bargain price of $14.99. Thank you Mike and back to Tim. Uh, thank you very much. Um, okay time for any Q&A's. Um, I'm gonna try and bring uh, John in I think first. Um, okay. Thanks for an interesting um, presentation, Mike. Well, thanks, John. Very quick question, and a short, a simple one. But um, just how many variants or marks were there? Because you said there was mark one to ten, but I noticed when you go through the pictures, there's marks one A, one B, and one C, presumably. Yeah, that's right. There, uh, there, um, the, the one it started with a mark one, as you might expect. Um, the Mark 1A was introduced because um, they realised, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier on, that the armament on it was uh, was insufficient, so they rearmed it. Um, and then um, the there was a Mark 1C, which again was a, was a slightly better airframe, which they'd already um, they'd already altered the airframe for what was to become the Mark II. So the Mark 1A was a Mark II, but with the same engine as a Mark I, <laughs> if you're following me. And so it, and so it carried on. Um, and in fact, it then went on um, up to, uh, the, I think the six and seven, I can't remember from the top of my head, were, were high um, altitude aircraft, which, uh, which ended up being sort of experimental almost. But it, in fact, it went all the way up to, I think about Mark 14 or so was, was the last one, which was an anti-submarine warfare aircraft. So, because there's 14 marks plus the, 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 the two extra ones, probably 16, 17 different variants of, of the aircraft. Oh, okay, we can hear you now. Okay, good to go. Um, yeah. Great talk, Mike. Thank you very much. Um, and well done, team, for putting this together. It's really good. This works, it works really well. Um, Mike, did, what, what was the general view about um, flying the Wellington? Was it a, a nice aircraft to fly? Yes, I, I think that, that um, fr from reading around, most people did seem to think it, that it was a very pleasant machine. I think it was a relatively straight, straightforward airplane to fly um, in, in comparison to aircraft of the day. Um, in fact, I did read one uh, one guy who was a um, a test pilot who said he thought it was a rather boring airplane actually. <laughs> um, 
But, uh, and again, the, the, the trials that um, the aircraft and armament experimental establishment did on it, they, they said that it was actually an airplane. It was virtually vice-free, I think they said that. I think, well, it, the, the, um, I think it, they claimed that it had a tendency to, to spin if you stalled it, um, but, uh, but that's probably common with mo most aircraft of the time. But I think it did, it did fly quite well. And the fact that um, it was such a robust airplane as well meant that um, it's, I think it took an awful lot of damage or a lot of punishment, should we say, either, either through enemy fire or just through, through mishandling. Really. So, and I think the fact that it stayed on as, as, as a, a, a training airplane right the way through the war, in fact, and beyond the Mark 10 uh, training airplane stayed in until sort of, um, well, right, right till the end of the 40s, really. And, and I think that's a, a reflection on, on very benign handling characteristics. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Cliff. Um, I think we have Peter now. I'm just going to, yeah. Yeah, uh, good evening, Mike. Thank you very much. Enjoyed uh, the little chat with Steve. Just uh, two, two questions from me. Where was the third factory that you mentioned where they were built similar to Brooklyn's? And that, that was Squires Gate at uh, Blackpool. And it's, I think it's just on the northeasterly um, tip of Blackpool Airport. If you look, look at it on Google these days, you'll see, all, I think all the factory builders are pretty much done. I don't okay. think it's anymore, but <laughs> it's still doing something. <laughs> and, and, and my second question, the, the two engines, obviously throughout its career, um, what was the, the bomb load, the payload of, of the plane when it started and, and when it finished, I guess, really? Um, yep, you can ask. Presumably, there was sorry, but the, presumably there was a time when the Lancaster took over, and the four engines were more important than the two, and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. The um, I, I actually can't remember the, the exact figures off the top of my head, um, but it, it's um, I, I think it, it it was when it first came in. So I think originally it was supposed to have um, I think some like a sixteen hundred pound. Um, bomb load when it was designed but actually it exceeded that i think it was sitting up about three thousand but eventually i think the mark 10s came in at about could carry about sort of four four and a bit thousand pounds um and as i mentioned it was it, it, it could actually carry a four thousand pound bomb um you're you're absolutely right the um the four-engined aircraft um were obviously much more powerful could carry much more could go faster higher and all the rest of it and what time in the war would the four-engined aircraft introduced? If we're talking thirty-nine to forty-two now, I think yes, about I think about midway through nineteen forty-two is when they started to come in. But um, and but but even so, what you have to remember is that, that not only were these aircraft being built to um, to equip the front line, but the front line was expanding at the time as well. So, for example, most of the Canadian squadrons, a lot of Canadian squadrons were formed, and that, that was six group, um, were formed with Wellingtons until such time as there were enough Lancasters or Halifaxes or Stirlings to, 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 to take their place. So uh, yeah. uh, quite a few, a few squadrons did start, you know, were formed off with Wellington and, and then eventually, um, eventually um, re-equipped with something bigger and, and better, as it were. Um, sure. Yes, yeah, so, so that's why the the the, the, um, the, the Wellington stayed in frontline bomber command service right the way through to uh, late 1943, really, um, and uh, by which stage the the, the production lines of uh, of the other four engine aircraft had, had opened up fully. It looks very stubby nose aeroplane with that big frontage. It looks like a opening windows. Yeah, well, it is. <laughs> Oddly enough. Um, I think later on during the war, when they uh, when they realised that 
when night flying, there wasn't an awful lot of call for the, for the front um, turret there. Um, they actually took the guns out and then fared over the, um, all, all the gaps around it and actually fared <laughs> over the, the bits where the, 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 uh, the guns pointed through because there's so much of a draft used to come through them. Incredible. No yes. more questions, thank you. Okay. No, lovely. Thank you, Peter. And I think we've got one from Chris. So if you go ahead, Chris. Yeah, good evening. Um, I'm aware that there used to be an underground aircraft factory at Midmanen near Marlow in Buckinghamshire. It sounds intriguing. I just wondered if you knew what went on in this underground aircraft factory. Hi, Chris. No, I, I'm afraid I don't know at all. Um, okay. All I, I can say is that as far as I know, it had nothing to do with the Wellington because as, I, as far as I understand it, they, they were all built either at Brooklands, uh, at Chester or, uh, or Blackpool. Um, so I'm not sure, but I, I imagine it, if it was an underground one around there, it can't have been very big. So I imagine it would have been you know, much smaller aircraft, I don't know, Spitfires or, or, or something something of that ilk, I would think. But um, no, I'd have to do a bit more research on that, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's probably built in the side of a hill or something like that. Yeah, to make yeah. it underground, but I just want, well, presumably it was secret if it was underground. I guess that would be it. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Although presumably not still secret, so uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Sorry, Chris. Lovely. Thank you, Chris. Uh, David, you've got a question, I think. Go ahead. Actually, just a quick response to the last questionnaire. There was a semi-underground factory at Leeds Bradford Airport, as it is now, but it was Yeadon Airport. The Avro factory had a site underneath the ground, but covered in turf and stuff, and they used to trundle the finished Lancasters out and put them onto the airfield at Yeadon, which had a short runway, and then they'd take them away to actually equip them. But yeah, it's just to decide. Sorry. I mean, actually, I was going to say, it's interesting, I, I, I thought it was Halifax's actually, but I, but I, could, I have actually flown into Yeadon um, in the Airbus, and it's still got a very, very short, and, well, frighteningly short runway, actually. And people have said, well, it's because it was, it was only made to be big enough for them to launch a Halifax, and they, they weren't expecting it to come back. You know, it's supposed to go off and land, where it had been built to go and land at the squadron. Um, so they didn't need a big, very long runway there. But yeah, it's still very short and very frightening, I can tell you. <laughs> Stuck up in the air as well, in all the winds and the gales. Very exciting. Yeah, exactly. uh, the question I had, the question I had was the, the fact that Although the Merlin engines were in short supply, I recollect that they did equip the Wellingtons for a short time with Merlin engines, but not for long. I don't know why that would be, because no, they were in such demand. You're absolutely correct. It was the Mark II, um, which was the reason it took, that it swung in a different direction when it took off, because um, the, the engines or Merlin engines rotated in a different direction to, to the Bristol engines that were, that, uh, that were used on the other marks. Um, yeah, the Mark II, and uh, they, um, it was a very successful version of the aircraft, actually. I think the only reason that they, uh, that they didn't build more of them was as, uh, what, the reason you've alluded to, the shortage of, of Merlin engines, because uh, it could actually carry more, and, and they were issued out to some squadrons completely had Mark IIs, but most squadrons had about one or two of, or, or three of them, um, simply because they could carry the extra bomb load and they could carry the 2,000 pound um, blockbuster bombs. So so each squadron had a few of those so they could carry the bigger bombs around. Intriguing to me that the actual F, the, the Boeing B-17 Fortress could carry 2,000 pound bombs and about 28 blokes with machine guns, yeah. whereas you could get a 4,000 pound cookie into the Wellington, albeit with a much shorter range and far less armament, but it's trading one deal for another, I suppose. Well, I, th I think it very much is, and, and I think that, yes, when you look at the other aircraft, you know, the Lancasters and Halifax, again, they carried an awful lot more in terms of bombs than did um, the aircraft, well, particularly the, the Fortress. Thank you for that. I'll stand back. <laughs> hey, lovely. Thank you, David. 
Um, Robert, I think you have a question. Uh, yeah, well, not a question, but uh, somebody mentioned Medmanum just now. Uh, I know there's a photo of a Connance, uh office there. They got photographs from Benson and Henley from Spitfires, but there's nothing. Uh, there's no Wellington factory there that I know of. Uh, just the just the offices for photo for photo reconnaissance. They identified the V two rocket sites from Peenemunda. Hope it's any help. Uh, I th that's absolutely right, isn't it? Yes, it, it was the um, photo um, the photo interpretation centre. <clears throat> yes. Lovely. Thank you, Robert. And we'll move on to Mike Dawes. Uh, Mike, th thank you very much for a, <clears throat> for a wonderful presentation this evening. Uh, when I'm in the factory as a volunteer each week, uh, lockdown permitting, one of my favourite exhibits that we've got in the museum, where I'm where I'm based, is a is a loading model for the Wellington, and fa fascinating to be teaching youngsters about mathematics and the like. And a thing that amazed me with it was taking on a uh, thousand gallons of hundred octane petrol. And just thinking of the whole logistics of getting that on board. But my question to you is, um, what sort of range would that thousand gallons produce? Um, the aircraft could well, actually went as far as Stettin. Um, I haven't measured that on a map, it's quite a long way. Um, so they, they did actually have quite a, a decent reach to them. Um, the thing that amazed me was when they were first built, they, were, they didn't have self-sealing tanks which seems unbelievable. So if you had a, a bullet through it, you'd lose all your fuel if you didn't catch fire. Um, so that, that was one of the recommendations that was brought in, um, I think, it, well, not probably until 1940, actually. But yes, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of petrol. Um, but, but yes, it, it could go a, a reasonable distance. Um, certainly they, they could reach Stettin or, or Berlin and, and, and back. Okay, no more hands appearing. So um, I think we've run to the end. So thank you very much, Mike and Steve been a really interesting talk this evening. Absolutely. Enjoyed it out there. Yeah. So thank you very much indeed for inviting me. So it's been a bit of an experiment tonight. So if, you, if you've got some feedback and there's been a few teething issues along the way there. Um, so do let us know if you've enjoyed it or not. And we look forward to the next one. Thanks, thank Tim. You. Thank you very much.